from Hamilton Place Strategies in Washington, D.C. This is the HPS Insights Podcast. Hello and welcome to Distilled D.C., a mini-series from Hamilton Place Strategies HPS Insights focused on how communicators distill complexity. I'm your host, Andrea Christensen, and today I'm excited to be hosting a Women's History Month special with some of HPS's strongest female leaders, Stacey Kerr, Christina Pearson, Kristen McIntosh, and Megan Pennington. I've been at HPS for seven years and can honestly say that every day I have learned something from the smart, creative, and courageous women at this firm. The women on today's podcast make up HPS's senior leadership team, and we have served as senior advisors to elected officials, communications leads at government agencies and major companies, as well as think tanks. So I'd love for each of you to first briefly introduce yourself, um, and then we'll go into a rapid fire round robin Q&A for our listeners. And um, if it gets complicated over Zoom, that's okay. Um, We're all in it together and um, we can do anything. So I guess let's start with introductions. Um, Stacey, do you want to get us started? Yeah, thank you, Andrea. Hey, everybody. I love to be together with this um, group of HPS colleagues and women. And Andrea, it's so fun to have this new podcast that you're um, embarking on and to, uh, to all be together for this. So thanks for having us. Um, uh, I'm, I'm a partner at HPS and I come to communications from, um, from campaigns and from Capitol Hill, where I spent a dozen years. I spent 10 years working for uh, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, the first time around. Um, and like some of you, spent time in both the majority and the minority on Capitol Hill. Um, I uh, then left politics, left Capitol Hill, and went over and was the chief communications officer and led communications for Georgetown University um, for a number of years um, before going into consulting. And um, and that's how I came to HPS two years ago. I'm Christina Pearson. I'm very excited to be with you all today. This is fun to do. Uh, I am a managing director here at HPS. I started my career as uh, a spokesperson at the U.S. Senate Finance Committee. That was my first job. I turned an internship into a job, which was fun. And then I, uh, in the course of my career, uh, eventually became the chief communications officer for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And then I was part of Microsoft's senior government affairs leadership team for almost a decade. And uh, Here at uh, HPS, I work with a lot of clients at the same nexus of uh, Capitol Hill public policy and communications in both the corporate and public policy worlds. It's fun to be here. Awesome. And Kristen, how about you? You're our newest addition to HPS. Yes, I uh, joined HPS in January. I serve as a managing director here. Really excited to be with everyone today. I, um, prior to coming to HPS, I worked at the Brookings Institution for about six years, uh, where I focused on economic policy as managing director of the Hamilton Project. Uh, prior to that, I was at Edelman, um, a large global PR firm uh, where I was a senior vice president uh, with their alliances practice. And before that, I spent the better part of a decade on the Hill, both the House and Senate. In um, the House, I started my career with Congress. John Conyers. Uh, I also work for Congressman John Lewis. And in the Senate, I was ultimately staff director of a leadership committee, the Senate Democratic Steering and Outreach Committee. And I also did a stint at the United Nations Foundation as well, doing public affairs and advocacy for them. Awesome. All right, Megan Pennington. 
Hi, everybody. So nice to be here. It's um, so fun to get together in this group and especially to have a conversation about women in the workplace. Um, I spent a decade on Capitol Hill, worked in both the House and the Senate. Um, I actually started my career with Barbara Mikulski, my home state senator, um, and actually the first Democratic woman elected in her own right to the Senate, I believe. Um, and that was that was sort of the such an unbelievable place to start um, and, and to see how important it was to chart a path and, you know, being a strong woman, professional woman, and, and, and knowing that how important it is to surround yourself with professional women. So that was certainly something that I thought about as I moved through different um, congressional offices and then ended up here at HPS where we look at public affairs from a different point of view than on the Hill. And it's, it's really fun, but the most important thing is having smart people around you to talk through problems. And um, I, I really feel um, that I feel lucky to be in a place like HPS with all of you. So I'm excited to chat today. Well, awesome. And again, thanks for everyone getting together. Um, this is going to be fun. So it's Women's History Month. Um, so we're going to start out with um, a question on the woman you most admire and why. Stacey, do you want to go ahead? Mine, it, it might be obvious that mine is Nancy Pelosi, but it's not for the reason that you expect. And it is because um, I just, it's because she's had these many lives, right? A woman that grew up, um, her father was the mayor of Baltimore and a member of Congress. And then she went and raised her children and then she ran for Congress. And so um, I, I guess more broadly, I, I really admire women. Like I love a reinvention. Um, uh, you know, it, it's trite to say people love Martha Stewart, but Martha Stewart has been a queen of, of reinvention and making it work as well. But I love... Um, I love watching uh, women whose um, careers haven't necessarily been linear and have, um, and have sort of reinvented themselves in many different ways. I'll go from there. Uh, I did a seminar on Virginia Woolf in college that totally changed my life. And it's really interesting that something that could be written over a hundred years ago could totally change your perspective. I, uh, her book, her essay, A Room of One's Own, about having the literal literal and figurative space as a woman to have a voice, to have your independence in order to maintain that in a world that was dominated by men, totally, totally changed my, the way I thought of things. And I would also say it really influenced my choices, both professionally and personally, um, because as women, we, it's funny, they don't tell you in the beginning of your career, when I was 20 and read that, I didn't realize that it would have so much meaning to me that at age, well, further down the line, when I have a teenage daughter, <laughs> I literally just went out and bought that for her, that essay, because I think it just really speaks to me at every stage of my life and, and has been such an influence. I'll jump in. Um, I really admire Oprah Winfrey. Um, you know, you hear a lot of leaders, uh, very successful people claim that they're self-made or self-built. But when you peel back the layers of the onion, you find that they often kind of started off on like third base <laughs> and they really had a lot of barriers um, really cleared and paths really cleared for them and things kind of served up to them. But I think Oprah's different. I think that she really did build quite a bit um, of this herself, obviously, with the fabulous team. Um, I admire her vision and how she has these big ideas and she makes them real and shifts them to reality. And to Stacey's point, she's reinvented herself and her business and her brand many times over the decades. I admire her willingness to take risks um, and sometimes fail publicly, but then often to you know, pick herself back up and sometimes build back better, as, as our new administration says. <laughs> time again. I admire her resilience um, and 
her role as a philanthropist and to take us along, you know, try to take America and the world along on her journey of self-improvement and, you know, spiritually, physically in so many ways and just share as she grows um, and, and try to encourage others to do the same. So I, I really admire Oprah. Kristen, I thought about her too, because I do think it's easy to look at these women who are really successful and, and, and not look back. I mean, they make, Oprah makes it look easy, right? I mean, Oprah made that recent interview look easy. And so I think it is really, really important to remember that for many of these pioneering women, it was never easy never. and it's, it's right. And, and they were clearing a path, um, you know, along the way. Absolutely. Um, well, I'll jump in and, and say, you know, I spent some time thinking about who there's so many women that I could say admire. And certainly I mentioned Barbara Mikulski and she is one, but I'm actually going to say an obvious one, which is my mother. Um, she, my mother was amazing in so many ways, but I think the one that was the most is just, she was so kind and humble. And this is a woman that didn't need to be, she had a career, she had a master's degree in child psychology, but and she was a mother to me and to my three sisters in, um, in, in the most compassionate and, and kind way. And I always think in my work life, there are two things that she used to always say to me that I, I think about in a stressful moment. One, she would always say, don't borrow trouble. I would fret about something. You're trying to figure out how am I going to do this? How am I going to have this conversation? And she would say, Megan, don't borrow trouble. And she was so right. You spend so much time worrying about something and not just doing it. Um, and the other one was trust in the timing of your life. She, she would say it all happens at the right time. And, and if you, it's again, like if you try to figure out and put all the pieces into place, you're just going to end up worrying about stuff that doesn't really matter. So I think those two, those two lessons apply to certainly personal life, but also I find myself going back to them and in my work life. Well, I think it's pretty fantastic that we have a lot of women from across history that we can draw inspiration from, you know, I mean, that Elizabeth Bennett is one of my uh, personal faves from fictional world, just because she has a lot of vivacity, but also is able to admit, you know, when she's wrong um, and learn from that. And so I think that, you know, anyways, fictional isn't quite, quite as, uh, as great, but it's pretty awesome that we do have that. Um, which kind of leads me to my next question for folks to just pick up um, being a woman in the workplace. I mean, and especially right now, but also in the past, and and we have had different career paths, all of us. Um, And, you know, the pandemic's been really interesting. There's been a lot of coverage about women leaving the workforce to care for families and and the undue pressure that has been put on women. Um, So there's a lot of tie-ins here, but I'd just be curious if, if some of you could speak to kind of the biggest challenge you faced uh, being a woman in the workplace and how you've dealt with it? I'll, I'll jump, I'll start off. Um, I, I think sometimes uh, the boundaries between the professional and the personal life, um, in my professional life, sometimes people have uh, made suppositions about the choices in my personal life. Um, you know, I was pregnant and up for a big promotion and um was initially not being considered for it because they, a person thought that I was, um, would be too busy when I had a baby to really want to take on that challenge. And to the person's, to the the leader's credit, it was actually a man. He said, well, has anybody bothered to ask her? And they came and asked me and I did want that challenge. And my husband, bless his heart, was very supportive of me. And um, it led to a long series of events where um, 
you know, he had to take on more of the workload, but that was a choice we made in our personal life together. And I appreciate my husband being a big supporter of me in it, but I would never have had that opportunity if people in my professional life, often, quite often men hadn't stopped and said, Hey, um, do we know what choices, what she wants or doesn't want? I think people assume if you are a woman with a career and kids that you need to do things a certain way. And every woman is different and, and should be supported in whatever choice she and her partner make period. Yeah. Christina, mine, mine has also, um, um, been about, uh, my biggest challenge has been about finding balance and, you know, feeling like I'm not serving my workplace or my family completely. Um, and honestly, not having a stay-at-home partner that has clear and full responsibility for taking care of my kids. You know, my husband and I are both have always been full-time working parents. Um, and sometimes those clear lines of delineation of whose responsibility is whose are sometimes easier to manage. And, you know, this has like evolved for me over my career and it's meant different things at different stages. I mean, I went on the road with a five-month-old, my first son, five-month-old at home, and I went on the road five, six days a week um, for work and, and my husband stayed home, you know, and took care of, and he was working full-time and had a new five-month-old baby at home. Um, and I wouldn't change any of that, but I think there's definitely constraints when you have to be home to meet a nanny or daycare or have family obligations um, while still being measured by the same standards as colleagues who don't have those obligations. And, you know, I've always appreciated at HPS, we have great role models of working parents, men and women, not just women. I mean, I see the struggle that, that dads are, you know, making to sort of balance it all as well. And I've appreciated that, um, that, that, that HPS and, and that workplaces are opening up to help people find that, but it's definitely, um, it, it definitely hasn't been easy to find that balance for me. Actually, Stacey, I should mention, you know, one of those times when I was making some choices in my professional life and Tony Fratto, our, our Tony Fratto at HPS, he, he went to bat for me and, um, and when I was up for a promotion once at a time when, um, you know, he said, she, she's great and we should do it, even if she is having a kid, you know, she, and he was very supportive. And I think that, you know, that is someone who um, will always have my undying gratitude that they believed in me sometimes more than I believed in myself in the moment when I was questioning myself. And um, that's one of the things I love about HPS and particularly Tony. Um, that's terrific. One thing that I'll raise um, in terms of challenges is just accepting. And I think the earlier in your career women can accept this, the better is that the workplace isn't always a meritocracy. I mean, sometimes it is, but it, it isn't always. And so um, not necessarily accepting that, but acknowledging it at least. And then how do you adjust to that? How do you plan to that? And acknowledging that sometimes you do work twice as hard for half as much in situations. Um, how can you be an advocate for women coming behind you? How can you learn from those um, who've come ahead of you? But I do think it's important for women to acknowledge that um, because I think it can affect how you structure your career path, um, the work that you put in the mentors that you try to um, learn from. And I just, I think it's an important thing that we have to acknowledge. So I, um, I think, and I, this has been a, a new thing that I'm thinking about kind of now that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm 35 and I'm sort of entered that era of my life where like most of my friends are married and have children and I am not married and I don't have children. And, and something that can be really hard, I think for women like me who have chosen and are maybe very happy in our lives the way they are um, to 
to, to figure out the work-life balance because sometimes it can say, you know, you feel beholden to say like, it's okay. Like I'll grab that because everybody else like has to take care of kids and, and you want your colleagues to have time with their children and time with their families. But, but also you might need time to go out with your friends or to read a book. And um, I think that, I think that single women without children struggle with that. I think we, we want, we want to support our sisters and, and, and make sure that there is an environment and a workplace where it is, it is possible to raise children. And, and I would just want to put a plug in and say that I think our society has a lot of work to do to make raising children easier. It is, it is an all of our best interest if people can raise really good, loved and supported children, because those are our future colleagues and our friends. And so it is like, it is on all of us. Um, but I, but, you know, I think we're still kind of figuring out what is that balance between kids, no kids, married, unmarried, I don't know, a part-time musician. <laughs> so it's, it's, you know, I, I think, I think about that a lot, especially during um, this COVID time that's been so weird. Well, I think that you raise such an important point, especially during pandemic and the need for people to have guardrails in their life between work and, and, and their personal life. And, you know, just because someone doesn't have kids doesn't make that their personal life needs any less important. And I do think that that's an important thing for people to acknowledge also, um, and, and I think in terms of, you know, which leads me to my next question, in terms of guardrails, like um, in work from home pandemic life, I think there was, um, there was a piece actually out yesterday from Microsoft that looked at the number of additional meeting minutes and the number of additional chat minutes that people have been having over the course of the pandemic. And it's enormously high and it's unsustainable. And so I'd be curious if you guys have any, um, like, guardrails that you you have put in or or that you you wish you could put in in terms of you know those blurred lines between work and home right now I'll say that I think if there is any silver lining to this last year of balancing work and home simultaneously in ways that no professional ever should have you know had to do um for this this sustained period it would be that at least it has entered the national discourse that childcare is um, an economic issue. It's a workplace issue. It's not just an issue for the ladies to figure out kind of in the corner in their free time. Um, so I, I think that's so important to see that it is really driving the national agenda being taken seriously in a way that it never has before. And these broader work-life balance issues um, are really in the mainstream now. And I think that's so important. And I'm pleased to see that there seems to be action, you know, at the highest levels of government um, that continue to acknowledge this and to solve it. And that this isn't just a blip. And then we go back to how it was before. Yeah, I don't know. I got to think of some guardrails. I, you know, I, I think often um, I find myself in a moment where I could send a chat and I'm not, and I just have to qualify this and say, I need to get much better at this. If I try to remember how I want to respect somebody else's time, it actually, it actually makes me feel better about respecting my own. Um, and so I think we all need to give everybody a little grace and some, and some empathy in this moment. Cause I think we all feel like everything's hard and there, and like, how are we going to fix this? And sometimes I think it's like, well, we're not going to fix it. The world is, we're trying to get back to it and nothing is really going to feel good until we are, you know, life returns to some kind of normal. But I, I think uh, thinking about, you know, 
the golden rule? Like, how would you want somebody to ask you this question or, and then, you know, remembering that kind of can, can in a stressful moment say, you know what, I'm going to just, I'll wait on this until tomorrow morning and ask them then. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's like, I go on a walk every afternoon, unless it is literally pouring down rain. Otherwise I will wear a raincoat. And it's kind of like, there is limited light. I mean, we're getting more light now, but during the winter, like there is, so you've got to go. And if that means that I'm calling into a meeting versus zooming into a meeting, that's what that means. Because for my mental health, I have to get outside every day. And that, so, I mean, for me, that is the one kind of fail safe, like that I have really prioritized um, for, for, for me. And that's been very helpful. You know, I think that Megan's point on empathy and is really worth pausing over for a moment. I mean, this has been truly extraordinary in this time that it has become acceptable in the workplace for a broad audience, not just women, not just working mothers, not just the HR person, but we are actually having real conversations about guardrails. And I think that, you know, quite often in the workplace, I think in, in HPS, we always tried to have a culture where we would, where, you know, we respected people's vacations, or if it was, you know, if somebody was, you know, said they had a sick day, we wanted them to go home. But I didn't always find that kind of acceptance um, in every workplace. Um, and I think that, um, I think that it is really good that we are at all levels of companies and offices, and with all people, talking about those types of things now and what those boundaries are and respecting them and, and respecting them. It also understanding that, you know, some people may, you know, uh, need to, uh, may need that afternoon walk and, but it's okay. They, they're okay with being engaged at seven o'clock. Some people prefer that, you know, they prefer their night owls and they prefer to do that. Or they, um, you know, I think that they, just people have gotten better about communicating that with each other and I, at all levels. And I think that's a really great thing that has been a change in the society over the pandemic. Well, awesome. Thanks. Um, and totally agree. Um, so going back to kind of a more specific work-related question um, that I think another thing about pandemic is we're all trying to think about how can we be, you know, most efficient with our time and you know, most effective at the same time. And so I'm just curious if everyone can just share if they have a go-to tool for uh, communicating something that's complex or challenging. I mean, whether that's, you know, I always go straight to like find a a research hook or whatever that is. Like, I'm just curious what tools um, people use on that front. Uh, So I'll jump on this. Mine is really simple and it's a team. (laughs) You know, I I think when you're doing something complicated or, you know, facing a challenging situation, I think one of the most important things is to get perspectives other than your own, right? It's very easy when things are moving fast to work on your instincts, right? And so I think having a team to sort of challenge you, and as we say at, you know, one of the hallmarks of HBS is like a culture of dissent and being able to sort of bounce those ideas and really challenge each other with that is, is really important. Mine is a new thing I'm trying to do with my email where I understand, like I'll start, I know there's like 17 things I need to ask in an email and I'll like kind of get some thoughts in and then I stop myself and say, am I, what am I doing here? It's like the, it's like that military philosophy of like info request, ask, you know, whatever. And I, and I try to like 
edit myself down and then make it very clear at the top, here's what we're doing. And I found that it's not only helpful for me, it does seem to, to get the, the person that you're trying to reach to answer your question a little bit more effectively. See, when communicating in difficult situations or crisis situations, it's important to step back and try to understand the vantage point of the other side of the issue. I think sometimes we become so passionate and such deep advocates, you know, for, for what we're working on or what we're trying to achieve, that it can be tough to step back and, and truly understand the motivations or the concerns um, of others. So I, I think that's really useful to step back and just truly try to have some empathy and put yourself in the other person's shoes as you craft your messaging, as you think through your response. Um, I I think that's really important. All right. So a follow on to that is um, all of us have had mentors throughout our career. We've learned a lot um, through different experiences. And I'd just be curious, what is one piece of advice that you would give to women just starting out in their careers that you really wish that you had um, when you were starting out? I went to a, a lunch on Capitol Hill once and I, it was this convening of women. And I honestly don't even remember what it was or how I ended up there, but the woman leading it said, find somebody who will advocate for you when you're not in the room. And I have taken that with me because, you know, especially in Washington, I feel like there can be such a push to network and get coffee and, and make sure that you know all these people and and that it can be really important. I mean, especially in comms, when we are meeting reporters, and sometimes it's like the right reporter or the right thinker at at an advocacy organization, knowing to reach out to you about something. So like, there's a time for it. But then when you're thinking about personal relationships and mentors, it's those high quality relationships that you develop over time so that there's going to be a moment somewhere where somebody just like maybe doesn't know you very well or doesn't understand you or doesn't understand your approach to work. And there, and that if there's somebody in that room that does and says, yeah, wait a second, you should ask Megan or you should ask Andrea. I think that goes such a long way. Yeah. Mine has been a, um, the advice I always give is to, it's perfectly fine to figure things out as you go along. I've never fully understood, um, you know, the advantage of charting a path early and not being open to sort of the opportunities that come along the way. Um, and that was definitely, you know, I, I, I certainly never intended to work for the first woman speaker of the house. That wasn't how I set out in my career. But I think just making sure that you are constantly learning and being challenged in your job, and that is what will set you up for the next opportunity, whether it's one that you orchestrate yourself or one that comes to you at a time that you may not even expect it. I'd encourage young people. I think one thing that both Stacy and Megan are touching on is you know, finding champions, but also being open to opportunity. And I think that I would add to that, be you. That That is so important. I find that often people approach me and say they want to be have a career like mine. And I've had a wonderful career, but I am actually more interested in what they want to achieve out of their life. And you will find your own path. And I think the important part about a mentor is that two-way street. You aren't looking to them for answers. You should treat a mentor as a a relationship of somebody who can bounce ideas off of, who can be your supporter and your advocate when you're not in the room, who can help you find the path that really achieves what you want to do. And I think it's okay that it changes along the way. What I wanted uh, 20 years ago, I laid out a whole path. I was I was the opposite, Stacy. I I I had everything plotted up until retirement, literally, and um, was a little flummoxed when I was 
34 years old and confirmed as Assistant Secretary of Public Affairs at HHS because actually, believe it or not, I really had wanted that job. I was a DC geek. That was that was the job I had been planning my whole life for. I won't go into the whole history here, but I had family roots in the department and I loved it. And I loved healthcare and I loved the people and I'd had family that had worked there. And that was the job I wanted. And I got it at age 34. And I was really confused afterwards about what I was supposed to do with the next 30 years of my life. And so I will just say to a young person, like my mentors, both male and female, the best ones were ones that were interested in me, that learned as much from me as I learned from them and helped me find my voice in my path and, and advocated for me along the way. Yeah, definitely. Um, totally echoing the idea of the need to dream bigger dreams for yourself, you know, than what you might see right out of school and to be open to um, where your career path takes you and not being too rigid in that. The other great piece of advice I once heard someone say was be known and for particularly for people, you know, coming out of school um, and starting their careers, try to be known as someone who cares about getting the job done right and getting the job done well. Like let that be your reputation. Let it be a reputation that you, you know, are willing to put in the work um, and, and that you care about the work and you're passionate about it. Um, so I think that's another just really good piece of advice that I often share. Yeah, I, I think that's great. And and also one thing that I've often heard and, and I've done is you just raise your hand, you know, at the end, uh, tail end of Governor Schwarzenegger's administration, they wanted to do a trade mission to China. And I was like, I want to lead it. And they were like, cool, you can lead it. So I mean, I, I completely ill prepared, but I was able to do it. And it's just, you just, I just asked. And so they think that there's a lot to be said for just asking. Um, well, and Andrea, that's a, another thing is to, it's, it's like fall, it's, it's fiction to think that everybody who's leading something is already prepared to do it, right? <laughs> so you don't you don't need to be right. Like it's it's if you have the confidence and the willingness to learn, it is fine to step up. You don't have to you don't have to wait. I see so many you know women who are waiting to take that next step because they want to be ready. I mean, my husband said that to me a long time ago. He's like, "What do you need to like? What else do you need to do? What box do you need to check? Like, just go, like, whatever's next for you, go do it. And men, men don't think about that. Men just say like, of course I can do that. And it's like, well, they're probably right. But you know what? I need to say that too. <laughs> or there's been a, maybe not all men, but there's certainly been a place in society where there, it's easier for them to, to just figure it out as they go, or they get more opportunities so I think for women, especially just like you did, Andrea, it's like, no, I can do that. And then step up and raise your hand. Yeah. And I think a big part of that is being told like you are capable, you can do it. Like, yes, you have to do the work. Yes. To Kristen's point, you need to focus on getting the job done and getting it done well and getting it done right. But if you focus on that, you can do it. Um, which leads me to the next question. And just if, if somebody has like a, a strong point of view on this, it'd be interested in sort of what like moment, it could be more recent, it could be historic, but like, has there been a moment that stands out to you that has been really important for working women? I know that I have a moment, actually, Kristen, when Kristen and I first met, we talked about this um, back in uh, like 2008, 2009, the, the women of the Senate were doing their checklist for change. And, and I remember it was around the time of Lily Ledbetter and the Supreme Court decision. And, um, and, and, and then, you know, there was an incoming Obama administration and, and we had the, 
this um, Lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Act that was signed into law, and and I won't go down the, into the details of of Lily Ledbetter, but she had she had worked a Goodyear tire, and she found out years later that she had been paid less than her male counterpart, and and the Supreme Court had decided that her rate setting paycheck had happened too um, too long in the past, and each rate setting paycheck, like kind of her her opportunity to um, contest that and and to and to uh, you know demand equal pay to her um, male counterpart had expired. And there was this moment where you know, all these women senators coming together and saying like, what are the issues that matter to women? And, and we, you know, there will always, until, you know, we just had equal pay day. So I, I don't know if everybody saw the, um, you know, the, the graphics on Twitter and, and around social media where it shows like, what women are earning, um, it's it's this day in the year until women earn what men earned in 2020. Um, And then it's like, of course, you know, the, the numbers go down by women of color. And it's just, I mean, it's just like, you look at that and you think like, oh my gosh, how could we really be so far away from parity here? Um, But I think back and, and, you know, we are in a time where it is, okay and it, and the women before us have paved the way to demand equal treatment in the workplace and i think that each time we have one of these fights like equal pay or um you know paid maternity leave or paid parental leave i mean gosh like people in the in the in the uh, private sector that have to you know kind of struggle with how are they going to go on leave and and how much of their salary will they earn while they're gone um so I don't know. I just think back to that that time, and it was really fun when Kristen and I were chatting about. We didn't know each other then, but we were both working on different parts of that in the Senate. That's right. And um, that was yeah, the Senate Democratic Women's uh, Senators Checklist for Change uh, campaign. It was it was quite an undertaking, um, and I, it was fun to work on that back then. Um, I'll chime in and say that I think every time women are breaking these, you know glass ceilings in really big ways, whether it's, uh, you know, Pelosi being the first woman speaker or um, Hillary Clinton being our, our party's nominee, uh, the, our, the Democratic Party's nominee, um, or particularly Kamala Harris being elected as the vice president. I think it matters so much for women and young girls in particular to have the representation and see themselves. Um, I can share that, you know, when I started my career, I worked for Congressman John Conyers. He was part of the Congressional Black Caucus, and I had a goal at that time, my you know career ambition was to be a press secretary on Capitol Hill. But it, in retrospect, it was really meaningful and impactful um, within the Congressional Black Caucus as an African-American woman to see women who looked like me, a lot of them having the career path um, that I wanted and to be able to talk to them and for them to mentor me and guide me. And I don't think I appreciated the extent of how important it was at the time. But I think, you know, men are fortunate that so everyone looks like them. There's so many people in all the highest levels of industry and politics and everywhere, you know, who, who look like them um, for little boys. But I, do, I really think it means something. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. Yeah, mine's a little bit more um, sort, of, sort of historic in, in, in government policy. And I think about um, maybe at the time it what really wasn't intended even for women in the workplace. But I think it was um, FDA approval of the birth control pill to prevent pregnancy in 1960. Honestly, like giving women control and power over making choices about their body and their family and, and having, you know, the ability to then balance a career around that has been huge. And I now hear there's, there's two pills moving over the counter at FDA. So hopefully it's going to get easier and easier to kind of eliminate the barriers that are keeping women from having full control over 
make, making decisions about, you know, the, the timing for their family and, and, um, and, and their careers. My moment's a lot smaller than that, but I think in the DC world, it was, it was something at the moment I didn't understand how important it was. Um, I don't know if you all recall, women couldn't wear pants on the Senate floor. And I remember they had to have a special rule. I think it was 1994 and Barbara Mikulski, bless her heart. I was so excited. I think I watched on TV when she, well, she wore the pantsuits, but she actually wasn't supposed to. And I think she had to get a full rule to like actually wear pants on the floor. And, and, you know, when she was elected to the Senate, there was not a women's senator's bathroom. bathroom. Yes. I, I, and then, and so actually I'm going to take this down a level though, which was fast forward to me being, you know, my first job working in the U S Senate and I, um, you know, 95, 96, even though there was a rule that you, that women could wear pantsuits, pantsuits, it couldn't be pants. It had, you had to have a full suit and you know, women were allowed to, if you were a staffer, you would still get thrown off. I actually got thrown off of the floor in my pantsuit the first time I went down there. Um, even though there was a rule that I could, but a member, an unnamed member objected to me wearing a pantsuit as a staffer on the floor. And so they asked me to leave. And of course, there was nowhere to change Megan because there was no women's bathroom anywhere nearby, of course, too. Um, but, you know, my boss at the time, and this goes back to champions and, and everything else and seeing yourself and other people, my boss, Bill Roth said, well, that's absolutely ridiculous. And he, the next day he said, you wear that pantsuit again. And he took me down to the floor and he sat with me every single moment while he made a floor speech and purposely sat with me and escorted me on and off to make sure that I got my pantsuit on the Senate floor. And I was trying to run back because the other senator was shooting me daggers. But I mean, this was also a time when, I mean, I think it's it's not enough to just have women leaders like Kamala Harris is a that's wonderful. That that is such a that is such a landmark. But we also need to have, you know, women that we can see ourselves in in her chief of staff and her staff assistant. We need to have men in traditionally women's roles and we need to be able to see all types of people at all levels. It can't just be Nancy Pelosi's speaker of the house. It has to be everyone below her and um, that we see ourselves in and um, and that there's that representation. Um, But I think as a mother, just on one final note here, you know, I was telling my daughter and son this story as I was preparing for this, because I was trying to explain to them, my son didn't think women were discriminated against. And I said, well, you know, mommy, mommy experienced some discrimination and this was also a time when it felt, I felt pretty gutsy at the time because I also had gotten in trouble for not wearing lipstick. A member had come up to me and said at a hearing that I wasn't wearing lipstick, so I wasn't appropriate. And, you know, and I was getting comments about my appearance. It's absolutely unacceptable. And I hope our daughters will never have to experience this. That's what I really hope has changed because I think now that we, now that we've had some of this change, but we also have people in power, whether they're men or, or women who advocate for everyone below them. I hope my daughter and son will never have that moment where somebody comments on what they're wearing or their lipstick or lack of lipstick or whatever. Uh, that's what I, what I hope. But it was a small moment, but it was big to me. Well, I think that that's a really powerful story um, in a lot of ways. And, you know, I agree that I hope that our children won't have to deal with any of that. Um, and it leads me to my last question here is, um, do you think the workforce is going to get better um, for women in the future and why? I think it's absolutely going to get better. I mean, I think, look at, this wasn't so long ago that Christina, you were talking about these advancements for sure. Um, You know, I think it's, I think there's um, a real um, commitment and a sea change going on and changing the barriers to, to giving access to the things that allow women to 
not only get into the workforce, but move up in it, right? And so that's education. It's paying interns in the industry in which we work in, right? It's giving people equal access to the pipeline programs that then allow them to sort of gain the skills and gain the professional networks that will allow them to, um, to, to thrive. Because what we all know is that when you get, you get into the workforce, none of us have our jobs or our titles or our responsibilities because we're women, right? When you get there, you are measured by the same standards as everyone else. So I think, I, I think it's, we're, we're focusing on, um, on, on giving more access earlier. And I think that will become more helpful for women in the workplace. I guess I would say, I, I hope it gets, I think it'll be better for everyone. And I think that being better for women is also that men, also that we, men are encouraged and take advantage of and have their choices respected too. And by that, I mean, you know, throughout my career, you know, my husband, you know, there are traditional, there've been traditionally some women, what people have perceived as women's roles, right? I'm a mother. So people think that I'm the one who has to pick up the kids. And there's a lot of things in my life that have been enriched by having kids. It's really weird that nobody says the same thing to my husband. And I think that part of things getting better for women is also going to have to take us respecting men's choices as well. If my son, if my husband wants to be the person who goes every day after school to pick up our kids, and he's doing that in order to enable me to do what I need to do in my career, he should be, you know, he should be praised for that. It shouldn't be, and frankly, it should be a, a normal thing that we respect everyone's choices. But I, I think, I guess I would say that um, I think it'll get better, but I think in order to get better, it can't just be about change for women, but it has to be a change for what everyone makes for their choices that's best for their own fam- for their, their own unit, whatever that is. I think it will continue to get better. I think there's been quite a bit of progress um, in recent decades. And I, I do think there's so much discussion. And I think by bringing these issues to the forefront, whether it's with paternity leave or you know having more flexible schedules for men or men being able to speak up openly in the workplace that they have kids and sometimes attend to them. I think all of those things make a difference and um, are informing the policies of uh, a lot of organizations. And I think things like equal payday and you know advocacy around those issues are, are really important too. So I think again, COVID has been a great opportunity to you know lay a lot of these issues bare. And I think as long as we use this to continue to advance them. I think it really is a lot of hope. Well, awesome. Thank you for that. I mean, I, I just say on the COVID front, I mean, we just had our first daughter and she just turned one. And so basically we've been a COVID family um, from day one. And so both my husband and I being at home, I think has just enabled us to have more balance in the roles from the outset. Um, that's been really amazing. I mean, I basically haven't cooked a meal um, since I've had my daughter because, you know, when I was breastfeeding, I, it, it takes up a lot of your time and I don't have time for that. And so that's something that entirely he took off my plate and he took care of feeding our family. And, you know, and, and that, um, that's pretty good. I mean, he always liked to cook, but it's just, I, I think that we, our roles are much more equal now and he's an amazing man and he is a very supportive, but this forced, I think, um, more equality and how, how things were split up, um, in a way that maybe, you know, we wouldn't have had before. So I think that there's a lot of benefits from the pandemic and, and also laying bare the challenges men have and, 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 and having children and their children are interrupting them and they're asking for things and all of this stuff. And it, it makes us all more human, I think, and, um, appreciate those roles. So I, I, I think that there's a lot of good that everyone weighed in on here. Um, all right, well, that is it. 
for this special edition of Distilled DC. Thank you to Stacey Kerr, Christina Pearson, Kristen McIntosh, and Megan Pennington for your time and insights. I'm your host, Andrea Christensen. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to the HPS Insights Podcast, produced by Hamilton Place Strategies. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at HPS Insights and follow us on the web at hamiltonplacestrategies.com.